Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Product Marketing Life Podcast, brought to you by the Product Marketing Alliance. I'm your host, Marcusini, Product Marketing Manager at Jobber. Every two weeks, I connect with PMMs all over the world about a product marketing topic of their choice. This week's episode is a little different than most. Instead of chatting with a product marketer, I'm talking to a former product manager and consultant who specializes in something that is critical to product marketing, and that's pricing. I'm joined by Dan Falkowski, Principal Consultant at Product Tranquility. After starting in software engineering, Dan transitioned into product management where at a variety of companies, he either took on or shared pricing responsibilities with product marketing. At Product Tranquility, Dan works with B2B SaaS CEOs to help them define pricing and packaging for new products. And since pricing impacts almost every inch of a business's strategy, Dan also offers guidance on packaging, marketing customer segmentation, competitive analysis and positioning, user research, and product engagement. If I didn't know any better, I'd say Dan is a secret product marketer. During our conversation, Dan and I talk about, well, you guessed it, pricing. He explains why he feels product marketing should have an active role in guiding what he calls pricing committees that drive pricing strategy and what product marketers should look out for when approaching pricing. Now, before we get into the episode, I've got some exciting news to share from the Product Marketing Alliance. Are you wondering how to align the product marketing function at your organization? Do your internal teams have little or no understanding of what product marketing is and the benefits you bring to the fore? Are you sick of being misunderstood? Product Marketing Alliance's brand new book, Misunderstood, features firsthand knowledge, techniques, and case studies to help you demystify product marketing, elevate the function, and gain the recognition you and fellow PMMs deserve. Learn how to effectively communicate the value you bring to key processes such as positioning, personas, segmentation, OKRs, and gain supplementary intel from the likes of Privy, G2, Hotjar, Intercom, Zendesk, Adobe, and Drift. Misunderstood is packed with takeaways that'll propel the value of your role and the overall importance of the PMM function and isn't to be missed. Get your copy on April 19th at pmmalliance.co slash misunderstood. That's pmmalliance.co slash misunderstood. All right, with that out of the way, let's do it. Hey, Dan, how's it going? It's going well, Mark. How are you doing? I'm excited for the conversation today. I'm doing well. Super excited to have you here also. So with that in, uh, out of the way, let's uh, get right into the questions. Uh, it'd be great if you could walk our listeners through your career and what brought you to founding Product Tranquility. Yeah, for sure. So I started my career actually on the engineering side, building software. I've been in the software technology space my entire career. I quickly found, you know, while engineering was interesting, building the products, I found myself more and more fascinated by how the products that we were creating created value for customers and how those turned into dollars and cents for the business. And so I transitioned in my career from the engineering development side to engineering management, and then eventually into product management, product strategy. Got an MBA during that point as well. And through a internship, actually, during my MBA program, I ended up at a very successful Silicon Valley startup. And the question sitting on the CEO's desk, they had a go-to-market model with a couple of key go-to-market partners. And one of the go-to-market partners was trying to position themselves as the low-cost player in that market and said, all of our partners have to have a freemium version of our product. So the question on the CEO's desk was, should we do this for all of our go-to-market channels? And so I showed up, he gave me that project as well as some others that I completed that summer. So I spent a whole summer diving into the freemium monetization model, ins and outs. I, TLDR, I do not recommend freemium, except in a very, very few rare cases. We could, we could put a pin in that and come back to it later if it's interesting to your audience. And that was kind of my first step into the world of pricing. And then afterwards, went into the world of product management, product strategy, different levels there all the way to had a product at a startup. And during that time, the companies I worked for 
acquired a bunch of other small to mid-sized technology business, mostly bootstrap. So I got to have a lot of experience of not only building product, but seeing the mistakes a lot of early stage companies make in their pricing, packaging, value creation aspects. And then went off on my own about three years ago and founded my company, Product Tranquility. So I've been doing that uh, for the last three years. And I currently focus primarily on helping high volume B2B SaaS companies with pricing and packaging for new products. Awesome. I appreciate that overview. And it's really interesting to, again, hear that transition from product development to product management. It's, you know, kind of a journey that I think a lot of product marketers take where they are in one area of the business and they get exposed to another area that, you know, falls within the product marketing umbrella. They're interested by it. And then they kind of go down this new path that they otherwise, you know, would never have heard of. Uh, obviously product management is a lot more established or has been around for a lot longer than product marketing has, but it does sound like there's similarities between your journey and the journey a lot of our product marketers have had. With that in mind, and again, knowing that you as a guest on the show are relatively unique, it's not often I talk to people who aren't product market, marketing managers themselves. Um, I'm curious, how closely have you worked with product marketing historically, uh, whether you know in your career prior to founding Product Tranquility or even in your role today uh, in consulting with other businesses? Very closely. So assuming that the company's at a stage where I think product marketing tends to get added as a functional role a little bit later stage. So the startup I was at, we didn't have an official product marketing role yet. But prior to that, very closely, I, I view product management, product marketing as tied at the hip as complements to each other. And so in that, in those organizations, you know, product marketing, I'm sure we'll touch on this, actually owned pricing, but through idiosyncrasies of, of experience, time, and knowledge, a lot of them, even though they own pricing, they would sort of look, hey, could you help with this, you know, in the terms of the analysis, the research? And so I, I got a lot of that, that experience, but I view them as, as the same, uh, two sides of the same coin. Yeah. And I think a lot of, again, product marketing managers and, and product managers themselves would agree with that assessment. You know, we'd say that they're arguably the two teams within an org that need to be the closest aligned. Uh, so yeah, I, I think, uh, you know, again, your experience probably mirrors what a lot of uh, other product managers and product marketing managers have had uh, as well. So thanks for that additional bit of insight. Back to pricing, which will be obviously the topic of our entire conversation today. I'm curious, what is it about pricing specifically that really pushed you or encouraged you to start an entire business around it? Yeah, it was a blend of interest, experience, and market need. And I think market need is the most important. So for anybody starting a company, the impact that you can have on somebody else is what really matters. I could get really interested and experienced and highly capable in a topic or a area that nobody cares about. But you know, when I started my consulting practice, I actually had many areas that you might consider underneath the product management or product marketing umbrella that I would help with, so product strategy, customer retention, market segmentation, as well as pricing. And after a bunch of conversations with potential clients, you know, I realized a lot of these companies were really struggling with pricing. There's, for a bunch of reasons, there's no formal degrees in pricing. You can't go get a bachelor's in pricing. You get bachelor's in marketing, uh, or you know, but there's not really anything there. And then there's nowhere near the level of like online courses or boot camps that you now have for data science, software development, product marketing, product management. And so a lot of companies are just sort of at a loss of what to do here. And so based upon that, and then I think also, as I mentioned, you know, I had these sort of idiosyncratic experiences that led to me being able to do projects in the space that maybe other folks, you know, weren't fortunate enough to have early in my career. And then 
I think it also blends that background in product management, business, customer value, and psychology in a way that's really interesting. So I find it very fun to play with all of those aspects. It, it makes the area much, you know, a rich tapestry in which to apply the craft. Totally. And it makes a lot of sense. You know, again, as, as product marketing uh, managers, we're often asked to fill gaps and identify areas in the market where either customers are being underserved or even internally where internal stakeholders are being underserved. And much like yourself, in identifying pricing be such an important part of, of any business, arguably one of, if not the most important part of the business. Um, seeing that there, to your point, there aren't a lot of places where people can get formal training in pricing strategies and, and your really in-depth conversations around pricing. So it makes total sense as to why, you know, you're, you are where you are today. And, you know, pricing, as I said, it is arguably one of the few make or break areas uh, of a business. Obviously, you know, you can make a couple of mistakes here and there or do some things subpar, but when it comes to pricing, if you get that wrong, that can spell disaster for your business. So with that in mind, when you're engaging with clients, are you often having to have those conversations with them around like the, how critical pricing is, or are they coming to you because they already accepted, look, you know, we really need to get this pricing right, or we're not doing pricing correctly today. And we really need your help. I'm curious how those conversations get initiated and how far or how closely you have to hold the client's hand to get them to a point where they really understand the importance of, of your own approach to pricing. Yeah, by the time they approach me, they've already sort of made the decision that pricing is an important lever. In many ways, you think about consulting services, there's a phrase, I didn't come up with it, but I think it's relevant, which is consulting projects are bought, they're not sold. So going in and trying to convince somebody they have a problem in an area is a very poor go-to-market. Uh, often want to find people that already have a pain point and then go solve that pain point. Where clients come to me is there's usually some structural shift going on in the business. So either the market's changed, maybe a new competitor has entered the space, competitors have modified their pricing, potentially the company that is growing is looking at potentially targeting a new market segment that they haven't targeted before. Perhaps software development and product management have built significant new functionality that could either be an add-on module or its own potentially tier or its own product. And so they're looking to figure out how to do that. Or, you know, they've, right now, even we've gotten a lot of, surprisingly, even in the software space started to get inbound because everyone seems to be dealing with inflation. And what does that mean? Wage inflation is actually a real thing. You think about the gross margins on software businesses are incredibly high. If you're, if you're Walmart, you would love any SaaS company's gross margins. So the COGS is, are not the issue, but you know, the cost of engineers and technical talent has just gone through the roof. So people are, are feeling that effect. So any number of one of those effects are, are where folks say, they look around and say, hey, we have a problem. We haven't really done anything here for years. We don't have the you know, expertise in-house. And then they, they come and talk to someone like myself. It's really interesting to hear you bring up inflation. Obviously, it's the word that is on the, the kind of tip of everybody's tongue these days, and it's impacting a lot of people in various different ways, but obviously with things getting more and more expensive, it's not a great time. Uh, but uh, yeah, it's, it's an area that I think you wouldn't expect to impact, as you say, a lot of B2B SaaS companies uh, in the same way that it would, like you said, a, a Walmart or, or a place selling physical goods. But to your point, yeah, with with salaries increasing, obviously those costs have to be off offset somehow. So it's interesting to hear you're starting to get some of those inbound requests from companies dealing with that kind of uh, pressure on margins. Uh, so yeah, I appreciate that, that additional insight there. 
So you, you referenced this in a previous question, but I want to go back to it. We talked about product marketing being the steward or the owner of pricing. Why do you feel product marketing should take that level of responsibility and ownership uh, around a business's uh, pricing strategy? Absolutely. So I think that, you know, in the early stage, right, if there's three founders sitting in a room, they have to, they're coming, they have a product, you know, one of them has to price it, right? And at some point, you know, they may spend an afternoon trying to figure out what their pricing is and then leave it be. And at some point, the organization grows to a certain scale. They reach one of these other areas. Like I mentioned, they, they're maybe acquiring a new product. They're building, building significant functionality. There might be a new product. They're trying to target a new market segment. And then they realize, hey, we need some help. Or, you know, as they go through that growth, you know, potentially they bring on a product marketing function as well. As companies grow in their pricing journey, I think the best way to approach it is actually creating a pricing committee. The reason is, is that pricing affects every single, every single senior stakeholder. It affects marketing, sales, finance, customer success, if you're, doing, you're responsible for upsells and upgrades. So it's very difficult for any one function, unless it's the CEO, to dictate the terms to everyone else because there's so many opinions. That being said, I do believe that product marketing should be the leader of that committee and have decision-making authority. I'm open to the idea that product management can open price, own pricing as well. The problem is, is that product management often has so many other things on their plate. It, pricing ends up being item number 53 on the priority list, and it doesn't get the attention and the rigor that is necessary. But both product management and product marketing have something in common, which is they're already deeply embedded, one, in the strategy of the company and the financial impacts to the changes that they make, given their positions in the organization and responsibilities. But then they're also really close to the customer in terms of deep customer insights. Obviously, salespeople are talking to customers and prospects every day. Your customer success folks are, are but the research required to build a product is much different than to sell a product, right? So uh, that's not to say one is any way easier than the other. It's just a different level of conversation and different time commitment needed in that process. And so I think you know, product marketing is able to approach the problem through that strategic marketing lens. One of the ways I think about the strategic marketing lens is that we had this drilled into our head when I was at business school. Modern marketing is understanding segmentation, targeting, positioning. Your market is not all the same. You have different segments of buyers because the entire market is not homogenous, but there are particular segments that act more like them, you know, within that segment than, than others. Understanding given the capabilities of the organization, the capabilities of the product, other competitive players, where are you best suited to target a particular segment and win? And then positioning. And I believe that pricing and positioning, you know, Pricing is a function of your positioning. And so PMM should own positioning. As an example, right? A, a, a Rolex at $20 is not a Rolex, right? That's a strategic choice that Rolex makes. It has nothing to do with how much it costs to make a Rolex, right? They've said, hey, given the position we are in the market, this is how we need to price our products. And so I think the product marketers are ultimately positioned to give the best lens given all those points. Yeah, I really like the framing you put on that, the relationship between positioning and pricing. I think that's something oftentimes we take for granted, right? The example that you use with Rolex, obviously it's easy to point at luxury brands and say, of course, pricing is supporting their position as being a luxury brand or a luxury player or a more premium player within their given market. 
but even subtle, uh, you know, lower, more affordable price points relative to the broader market or competitive landscape can have a really big impact on how that company is positioning itself towards its customers. And, you know, it's any product marketing manager or any product marketer who's looking to take a critical look at their positioning, whether it's to update it or just to do a, a regular review, needs to have that pricing lens closely, you know, next to them and, and part of that equation to your point, because they are so closely linked. So I appreciate you kind of highlighting that because again, I think it's something that at times can get forgotten or missed, especially depending on, as we were just saying, who owns or is the steward of pricing. If maybe it's a relatively new startup and as you referenced the CEO or group of founders still is very closely got pricing within their grasps and, and kind of in their oversight, it can be hard as a product marketer to then go in and say, well, we want to adjust the positioning and not have that ability to pull the pricing lever to support that change or that adjustment. So I, I like that, again, that you put that lens on it. And, and as a follow-up question, again, a lot of product marketers, they find themselves at new startups where, again, the, the founding team set the price on launch day and it's never really left their realm of responsibility. How do you recommend a product marketer navigate the conversation and decision that needs to be arrayed around having the decision around pricing stay within those founders or within that CEO and have it transition to, as you suggested, a pricing committee or even just product marketing as a first step? Yeah, it's a great question. And it's incredibly important because if it's sort of at that CEO level, I think the CEO is fine to own it. The major problem is that they've got a million things on their plate. And so their ability to really undertake the analysis and the rigor to figure out what should be changed is really limited. You know, they can only spend so much time because they're constantly firefighting at whatever stage of growth your company happens to be at. Again, I, I go back to this idea of a committee. If there's, if there's not an internal sort of process and owner, I guess the question is, can you raise the idea of pricing as a lever for growth? Can you, because otherwise it just is like this thing that we just ignore and it gets, it's uncomfortable and it gets ignored. I think ultimately there's sort of two different situations that I see in companies. And one is the first one is the dominant case actually, which is actually pricing is not owned by anybody. Founders said it a while ago, but as far as they're concerned, they, they'd be fine to not touch it because they don't understand it. And they're were like, like, I don't want to screw anything up. Nobody else, maybe, you know, sales has like discounting authority, but nobody really is owning it. Um, it's lying on the floor. So in that case, just go pick it up, right? And really anything in terms of ownership of a company usually means who's doing the work to move the business forward. So, you know, can you, you know, without authority, you know, with, it's well within the domain of product marketing or product management to undertake competitive analyses, have willingness to pay conversations with your customers and prospects. You know, build a business case for pricing and packaging changes. And if your leadership cares about growth, and I'm assuming they would be anything to open to anything that helps them achieve their goal, then you know, they're going to look at the person who's done the work, has taken the initiative and say, hey, this, this, this looks promising or this doesn't, right? can you move this forward? I think that's sort of the first case where it's sort of not owned by anyone. If it's owned by another function already, that can be more difficult. And again, if, if you don't have this idea of a pricing committee, right, you're all stakeholders. Uh, you know, whether it's marketing, you know, again, depending upon positioning in the market, if you're the low cost player, you know, price is going to be a driving part of your messaging, right? Uh, you'll notice the luxury brands like the Rolex, none of their ads, none of their messages ever mention price. 
you know it's expensive. No one needs to talk about the price. If you can't afford it, you're not in the market anyway. But if you're a low cost player, then you know, marketing is definitely concerned about price and their ability to drive you know, demand generation. Sales is obviously a stakeholder, finance, all these, all these people. And so making sure that product marketing is, is a stakeholder, if not the original owner. And I, I think you run into, it's really good. This really going to vary company by company. Some companies are sales led or engineering led or finance led. That's just the way it is. It might have an uphill battle on your hands if you try to go rest control directly, but at least try to get a seat at that table. And again, doing what you can to move the process forward, making the business case, if you, someone who's done their homework, right, they'll be looked on much more favorably than someone just sitting there complaining that, hey, our prices are wrong and I, you should give me responsibility for doing it. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more there. And I think as product marketers, especially if we're the lone product marketer at an organization, we're often asked to find opportunities proactively to, to your point, drive the business forward and, and you know, pursue growth opportunities. And I think as a product marketer, when it comes to pricing and you're trying to assess is this something that anybody owns? And, and is this something that I could potentially take ownership of or at least drive the needle forward and form this committee? Just go around and ask people, why are we pricing it the way that we are, or we are today? And, you know, whether it's the sales team, whether it's success, whether it's the CEO or the founders directly. And, you know, if they're not able to give you a really good answer, or as you kind of said earlier, they just say, well, that's the price it's always been. That's probably a good indicator that it's time to start having some of those critical conversations and, and you know, asking some more of those probing questions to figure out, you know, sounds like there's opportunity here for product marketing to step in and take some ownership and really drive results. Uh, as challenging as, as pricing can be, if you can power through it and make a solid recommendation, you can really see your stock within an organization rise pretty quickly. At least, yeah. And there's, and there's a and there's a there's a, a common scenario which I, I neglected to mention, which is oftentimes when product management, product marketing are preparing for launches or you know, big campaigns product has spent a bunch of time building some new capability, right? It's fair game at that point to ask, is this separately monetizable? Should we be considering that? If you're just saying, oh, this is just another feature, right? You're going to lose the, that opportunity. So I think that opportunity comes up more often than you might expect because, you know, we're, companies are constantly changing the value of their product. They're constantly, you know, engineers and product managers and designers are constantly improving the value of the product. But for some reason, we just haven't adopted this mindset of, oh, we're changing the value. Should our price change as well? And that's not to say you should be increasing your price with every product release or changing all your, your bundles or packages, but it opens up an opportunity to have that conversation. Agreed. Yeah. And there's no harm in asking the question every time a new feature is released or in development. Some of them are likely going to be so low value or so low impact to the overall value that it's not worth having the conversation, but at least asking the question helps you assess and maybe even assign a priority to that specific features, you know, go to market strategy. So I think it's important to always be asking those questions because uh, every once in a while, to your point, you're going to get one that comes around where initially when it was being thought up by the product team, there was no plan to have this be something that could be monetized separately from the existing uh, monetization strategy. But having that ask question being asked just keeps that front of mind and makes sure that those opportunities aren't being missed. Um, so yeah, I, I appreciate that additional piece of, of insight you're able to share. And I just want to quickly go back on something that you mentioned earlier around, you know, again, premium pricing, but you know, there seems to be with certain B2B SaaS companies, this hesitancy towards showing prices, whether it's a, you know, firm decision to say, we're not going to tell anybody your prices, at least publicly on their website, 
or it's just something that they've never done. So they've never really questioned whether or not they should be, continue to do it. I'm curious what your take is on that approach when, it, when a company decides we're going to keep our, our prices close to our chest and we're not going to share those until we're, we know the prospect is serious about a purchase decision. It's a great question. There's some statistics on this are hard to find, but the ones I've come across is for B2B SaaS, about 50 to 75% of SaaS companies have public pricing and packaging. So somewhere in that range. So if you show public pricing and packaging, you're in good company, at least you could take that away. I think there's three kind of core models that companies need to think about. So first one, public pricing and packaging. Second, no public pricing or packaging. And then the third is a hybrid where maybe you have a public display of your, of your packaging, but no price levels. And each of them are best suited for different situations. So you know, public pricing and packaging is best if you have you know, standardized packaging you know, that's easy for customers to understand. You know, if you're in a horizontal market, like an infrastructure type market with a, with a humongous market and standardized competition or high volume and velocity, like a product led growth type model. Uh, the reason why it's valuable in, in that last scenario is because oftentimes then you're trying to minimize the amount of time sales is spending with unqualified prospects. And so it acts as a, what, a way to exchange information without a sales guy having to explain the same thing on every single call, but also deferring people who aren't interested given your, your, your pricing and your offering. The second is no public pricing or packaging. And this is best for if you have like an enterprise sales motion, or if you have complex packaging that requires a salesperson to walk through, I've talked to clients that have like a 45 page price list. And even if you wanted to publish that on your website, good luck to any customer that wants to try to understand it. So it really requires some handholding, understanding what the customer is trying to do, and then building a, that you know the proper offer you know, with the experience of the internal sales representative. Or uh, that model also works if you have a high difference in willing willingness to pay between segments or a small addressable market. So potentially, if you've got just to throw it out there, you know retail will your you know financial services customers will pay 4x more than retail, right? You're potentially leaving a large amount of money on the table uh, if you know you publish just one flat pricing, right? Um, or if you have a small addressable market, like there's a hundred potential customers, right? Each of them might be worth seven, seven, eight figures a piece, but you know, it's not necessary to have the public pricing and packaging that. And then, you know, then there's the hybrid. And of course, with any of these, there's a million different tiny variations. Uh, but, you know, that's sort of best if the hybrid where you have your public display of your packaging, but but no price levels. If you have good, clear, like good, better, best uh, offers or uh, bundles, because then customers can sort of easily see, okay, like this helps me figure out what's what's available and, and what the potential upgrade paths are. But again, you may not have price levels because they're, again, maybe you're in this area where you have high difference in willingness to pay between segments or that small addressable market. So depending upon your situation, it can be a strategic choice uh, one way or the other. Um, I, there's not a, a one size fits all. Yeah, it's really helpful to have those kind of three different scenarios laid out. So thank you for that. I think it makes it a lot easier to approach, you know, why you might want to consider one versus the other. So that's very helpful. I'm curious for the, the second scenario specifically, you know, no public facing packaging and pricing, how often is that being done? Or at least have you observed that being done for competitive reasons? Maybe the org is, you know, wanting to remain competitive because it is such a fiercely competitive market and they want to be able to undercut 
should a potential buyer be talking to multiple uh, providers at one time? Is that is that happening often, or is that not necessarily the best play? Where I think competition is an interesting lens, and it's something I didn't cover. So where competition I think is most relevant there is what are your competitors doing? Do your competitor? So I look. I think about the project management space, Trello, Monday.com, Asana. It's a long or a very large market because you know I could use Trello or a software developer could use Trello or you know someone's assistant could use Trello, right? It doesn't. It, it, it incredibly diverse. And so it's a huge market with many varied use cases and the all the competition in that space has public pricing and packaging. And so you potentially in that case are at a competitive disadvantage because then customers are like, well, hey, there's there's 10 other companies. That, why are you making it so hard? And you just look like you're difficult to do business with. So in that case, that's where I think competition comes into it. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. You don't want to be the only you know company on the block that that does seemingly keeping that hidden for whatever reason. It, it, to your point, ask the question, like, what are you trying to hide? <laughs> why aren't you telling me that up front? It seems like everybody else is. So, you know, with that sounding like a pretty big mistake to potentially make, if you are that one company not sharing your prices while others are, I'm curious, what other mistakes have you come across, whether being made by product marketers or just more generally when it comes to pricing that you've had to step in or at least have observed and been like, ah, there's probably a better way to go about this. Yeah. When it comes to SaaS pricing, most executives think that what you charge will determine your success. In fact, who and how you charge determines your success. So when most clients start conversations with me, they're really focused on not all hundred percent of the time, but a lot of the time on the price level, we, you know, this is, this is we're charged by users or by seats. Should this be $10 a user? Should it be 20? Should it be 1995? Those are fun, interesting conversations and I'm happy to have them, but they're at the very tail end of the process and actually are the least impactful to your overall success. So understanding who it is that you serve, how you're creating value for them, and then aligning your overall packaging to align with that value is much more important. Yeah, and again, I think it just reinforces that conversation we were having a little bit earlier around the relationship between pricing and positioning. You know, it sounds like based on some of the examples you just gave, there are some clients that you work with and they're coming in with a very tactical lens, should be priced this much, should be charged by seat, should be charged by, you know, behaviors performed, whatever that might be. When really, you know, anyone when it comes to pricing, especially product marketers, much like with most things, should be taking a step back, back and asking, how does this impact the broader success of the business? How does this impact positioning? How does this impact, you know, how we're going to build out the go-to-market roadmap for the next, you know, three to four quarters? It, it, depending on when that pricing decision is being made. So yeah, I, I think that's really some really good insight to share and something that you want to avoid is to just take that purely tactical lens. Uh, and it's really important to just take that step back and look at the the whole picture as again, like I said, we, we do often with product marketing. Yeah. And you, in you, in your response there, you mentioned what I would refer to as the pricing metric. So the pricing metric is the unit of value that you charge for. So it's the unit of exchange. So we're charging by number of seats or number of API calls or size of data stored. And that I, that's one of the major components of how you charge. That's the, what I, one of the elements I refer to in when I talk about B2B SaaS packaging, your pricing metric is incredibly important. And it's so important that you can get pretty much the price level almost entirely wrong and still be successful if you get the pricing metric and your other packaging components correct.
curious, have you ever worked with clients? You don't obviously have to name any names, but have you worked with any clients that have gone through the exercise of changing that, that pricing or value metric? And if so, how challenging of a experience is that? It's a great question and it's specifically timely because I'm about to post a very long, so sort of my ultimate guide to pricing metrics blog post is probably coming out, if not this week, then definitely next week. So pretty excited you asked about that. It's challenging because again, the, when we think about pricing, all conversations around price ultimately come down to value. And most companies are blissfully unaware of why it is that customers value their product. And that is the challenging part is getting them to understand because where, where a lot of companies start, let's take like a broad infrastructure play, like a AWS, I, you get charged by the number of EC2 systems you have running CPU cycles, bandwidth consumed. That's all through a cost-based lens. And so when they charge you based on that, or I have a cost based orientation versus the, the other approach is taking a value-based orientation. So understanding, okay, our customer, you know, I could be running one piece of software and getting tremendous value and another piece of software is getting no, like very little value off the same CPU cycles. It's very difficult in those situations to get closer to pricing. So I understand why those horizontally focused infrastructure type companies do that. But the closer you can get to, how is it that your customer derives value from your product, what we call a value driver, that lends itself to understanding a value metric. The value metric is the units of measure that customers use to judge how successful your product is. Then the exercise is not necessarily straightforward because there's still some additional steps and you could read it by blog post. But then what you're trying to figure out is, okay, what are the potential things we could charge by that align with that value? Because then that makes the entire go-to-market motion easier because then your sales team ex can explain the value, your marketing messaging can explain the value, and then customers can clearly see, oh, as I get more value out of this thing, this scales with price versus I, I used a thousand you know, terabytes more data this week, you know, how is that more necessarily more valuable to me, but I'm getting charged more. Uh, so that's one of the, I think the main challenges that, that folks have is, is that understanding customer value at the front end of that process. Yeah. And I think that challenge only gets amplified when identifying that you need to make a change because you've gotten initially that value uh, and price correlation wrong when making that change is going to lead to short-term potential negative impacts to your, your top line, right? Like maybe going through this exercise makes you realize that, Hey, you know, we thought this was the value metric. It really should be this. And we've now got to completely overhaul whether right away or over time, our pricing and packaging strategy. And it's going to hurt for the next, you know, two, three, four months as we go through that transition, but in the medium to long-term, it's going to pay dividends. And I think a lot of product marketers, and more broadly speaking, businesses are sometimes afraid to acknowledge that and raise their hand and say, hey, this is going to suck, but we need to do this for the long-term health of the business. And I think it takes a really brave product marketer and a really brave org to go down that journey. So hats off to anybody who's gone down that path. I know I worked at companies where those conversations began, but because of that hesitancy towards seeing that short-term impact, because they've got to keep investors happier, they've got to hit targets, that conversation very quickly 
was abandoned. Uh, so I can imagine that's something you've probably had to work with yourself and uh, definitely not easy as speaking as someone who's, again, begun that process, but never been able to actually follow it through. Yeah, this is going back to the committee and having a process. This is where it's important because if there's not necessarily an owner and it's just somebody trying to pick it up and run with it, they, they're going to run into that conversation over and over again. And it doesn't in some ways necessarily matter. You could come back with the perfect conjoint study data. Everyone else has their own special lens that they're trying to look at that through. And so you really do need someone who has consistent ownership and is, is making small wins right before you maybe take on some of those bigger wins. This is also where it helps to have an external perspective because then you have an unbiased third party who can sort of sit in the middle and not, you know, if, if we're looking at, you know, a, a change in price, you know, sales is looking at, oh, what is this going to do to my, my quota attainment goals? they're going to be a little bit risk averse, right? For good reason, because their livelihood depends upon that. You know, if, vice versa, right? The customer success team is like, this is going to impact my ability to sell upgrades, expansion revenue, and and so on. So, you know, it helps. It, you know, it's interesting when we talk about money and price in general, you know, most people have a let's say, interesting relationship to money. We all are irrational in our own special way, whatever your background is. And then we take all these people together, we put them in a company, and we expect that company to be rational, but you just filled it with a re- people who have a really weird relationship to money and price. So that's where it could help to, to have a process, to have you know, rules of the road, potentially have an unbiased third party to help you know, guide the process and, and uh, break those log jams that, that are inevitable in occurring in, in that kind of change. Absolutely. And it, I think you hit the nail on the head when you talk about, you know, sales and changes to pricing impacting their own compensation and their own incentive structure. And obviously having that committee-based approach or having a, a, you know, an unbiased third party come in helps bring those stakeholders into the process early. So it's not a matter of, again, whether it's product marketing or product management presenting to the org, hey, this is our new pricing strategy, get used to it. You've got those stakeholders from the beginning on board and understanding and adjusting their own you know, team structures or team practices or compensation packages to align with that change. So yeah, the sooner you can get in again, and this is something that I've had conversations with guests on a variety of topics. So it's just a recurring theme. Whenever you're going to make a change within product marketing that affects other stakeholders, the earlier you bring those stakeholders into the process, the easier it's going to be to get them to buy in when it comes time to make those changes happen. And I know that sounds incredibly obvious and I'm sure everybody listening is like, yeah, well, duh, of course. It's amazing how often that step gets missed. And I'm someone who skipped that step step myself. So I'm guilty guilty as well. I've done that before. I think we all do it, right? We just want to get to a result and we want to get something out fast. And we don't take a second to think, you know, I got to sell this to these people or this is going to impact these different teams. Maybe I should start getting them involved early. So it's hard. You have to balance acting quickly and and showing impact. You, You know, you can't sit on decisions for six to 12 months and then not having to show for it, but you also can't expect to make a decision as important as pricing in a couple of weeks in a room by yourself and expect the entire org to think you're a hero and that you've nailed it right on the head. Well said. Uh, thank you. Uh, well, so this brings me to my second to last question here, Dan. And it's, I think timely, you know, you mentioned your upcoming blog post, but I saw that you had posted a blog post recently about how listening to your customers can sometimes sabotage your approach to pricing. And I, I found that interesting as a product marketer, because we're often told as product marketers to be customer obsessed, to be the voice of your customers, to have customers drive a lot of the decisions or recommendations that you're bringing 
to the broader org. So I'm curious how you recommend a product marketer navigate that kind of conflict or tension between being the voice of the customer, but also not being or allowing that voice to overpower your own decisions, especially when it comes to pricing. This is funny. You'll have to pardon my rather clickbaity title on that post. The post is really about listening to your customers, but at a much deeper level. If if I could put a billboard around the world for every product manager and product marketer to see, it would say, talk to your customers. So I am very much in fan of bringing customer input into the process. This is the problem. When people talk about voice of the customer, the voice of the pr- customer process is fraught with ambiguity. If you assume that innovation is a process of which you're going to put a price on that innovation at the end, if you use customer input as the primary input to your innovation process, but haven't defined what inputs you need, it's almost impossible you're going to have a successful output. So that post is really about getting solid definitions around what you need when talking to customers, which is their outcomes. So customers, when we're having discovery conversations, and I've had probably thousands of them at this point, given my time in in product management and, and pricing, customers tend to provide a couple of different things that aren't their outcomes as a first pass. That solutions, like what are the tangible features they want to see in a product? Design specifications, like this button has to be a certain color, or we have to have these steps in a workflow. Customer needs, so general descriptions of the overall quality of the product, like reliable, effective, effective, robust. Customer benefit statements, like they want it to be faster, better, more affordable, or opportunities or problems. So sets of circumstances customers think they can improve. However, like with that last one, precision and what, what is an opportunity or problem it doesn't have a common definition. And so the, that post was written as a sort of a summary of a really good book I highly recommend uh, by a guy named Anthony Olwick. He's one of the fathers of Jobs to be Done. And he created a process called Outcome-Driven Innovation. And really Outcome-Driven Innovation encourages us to look for desired outcomes. And outcomes are the metrics that customers use to measure how well a product performs a job. So we, in jobs to be done, you know, customers, much like if you were hiring a person for a job, you'd look at their resume, all the products on the shelf in a store, all, on any website, they all have a resume. Customers are hiring them to do a job. So how are customers going to measure the success of that product? And customers are not ready to describe the metrics that they use. They, they come with solution minds because they're in the world of existing solutions. Right? They're not engineers, they're not designers, and, and, they, and that's not their role. They don't need to be. It's not, it's not a ding against them. It's our job to probe past that, to understand why, what is it that they're ultimately trying to achieve. And so I think we do a major disservice when we talk to customers, we have a conversation, we run back to the team with, this customer asked for this thing, we need to build this, this widget with no understanding of the outcome, right? Because then once you understand that, it, it unlocks so many things. We were going back before to specifically on pricing, that solving a customer's outcomes is the fundamental ground truth of value creation. When I allow you to make progress in your life, that is where value is created, right? And so that allows us to understand the value drivers, then the value metrics, and getting into our pricing metrics, right? So in that level, and as well as if you understand outcomes, 
from a broad base at the beginning of the innovation process. And this is a point Tony makes a lot in his book because his is more focused on the innovation process. So, you know, uh, product development, design, uh, innovation. It unlocks the creativity of the rest of your firm because now we're not locked into a solution mindset. We're locked in a problem, like, we're, and not our problems, not, hey, we need to grow 20% revenue next year. You know, your customers don't care about that. But what, is the, what are the problems that customers are having, which then allows your incredibly intelligent product marketers, product managers, designers to innovate around what are all the potential ways we could solve outcome, that outcome for that customer and really create that value. I, I think that's really insightful. And again, I encourage everyone listening to check out Dan's uh, post because you're right. You know, if you take that title at first glance, you might think that those two kind of recommendations are kind of at contrast with another, but clearly, you know, based on what you just said, there's a lot more to be absorbed and, and taking that kind of outcome-based lens will allow you to do that. And, you know, maybe just to make this a little bit more, not necessarily more approachable, but just to use an example, uh, you know, if, if you were to ask, let's say a graphic designer who's a freelancer, you know, what do you what problems are you trying to solve? They might just say, well, I, I, or we're building a website, let's say, that's for graphic designers. What do you want on it? They might just say, well, I want to see a list of jobs. But if you look at the outcome, what they're actually trying to do is support themselves, develop a business, have an online presence. And that's what takes you from going to developing a you know graphic designer-oriented job board, people can just post jobs for graphic designers, to a marketplace platform that allows developers, or sorry, not developers, but graphic designers to create a profile where they can list, you know, portfolio samples and establish a reputation and, and interact with potential clients and quote jobs and that so and so on and so forth. So if you if you just look purely feature to feature and ask feature-oriented questions, you're gonna get feature-oriented solutions and recommendations. But if you ask probing questions and really get to the value or the the problems or outcomes that that individual customer is trying to get to, that's when you get to those more robust solutions uh, and potentially the ability to uncover the value metric that's going to drive how you price the solution that you're looking to build. Yeah, absolutely. Well said. Awesome. Well, as I said, you know, that was my second last question. So we're now at our, our final question. Um, and, you know, it's not often that I get to talk to individuals on the show who aren't product marketing managers or product marketers themselves. So I've, I've had to adjust this ever so slightly. So I hope you uh, are okay with that. Um, you know, I typically ask my guests, you know, if they could be a product marketer for any company and what service uh, or, or any company and any service that they offer, what would it be? But I think in your case, given your, your focus on pricing, I want to ask you if you could partner with a business and help them develop or reevaluate their pricing strategy, which company and or product or service would you choose and why? Man, this is a tough one. This is like picking my favorite child or worst child. I'm not sure. Um, so I generally prefer to work with high volume B2B SaaS companies. And I would say that probably LinkedIn comes to mind and it may be a little bit different than you're thinking. LinkedIn does pricing so well that I think I could learn a ton from them. So from a personal perspective, I think that would be exciting. And because they're already good, making positive changes would be a challenge. And I love a challenge. So that would be my answer. They, they are, I think that one of the top in the world in terms of their pricing and packaging approach. I like that. I actually did not expect an answer at all. It's not what I would have thought. I think, again, just based on the way that I personally use LinkedIn, I, I never in, engage with how they price themselves because I'm using the entirely free experience. Uh, but I, I like that. It's, it's you know, learn from the best, but also challenge to be better than the best, I think is, a, is an interesting approach. So I appreciate that answer. And uh, yeah, unique one. I did not expect that. 
Awesome. Well, as I said, that was my last question. So I'll let you go here, Dan. You know, again, I really appreciate your time. I think it's always important as product marketers to get outside of our bubble and talk to people who have really good insights about things that impact product marketing directly, whether it's pricing, whether it's packaging, whether it's go to market. Uh, And, you know, I think you're a perfect example of that. You're obviously someone who doesn't come from a product marketing background, but as an interactive product marketing, obviously you have a really good understanding of what product marketing is just you know, based on how well you spoke to it during our conversation. So I would highly encourage any of our listeners, you know, it's great to talk to fellow product marketers, but sometimes we need to challenge ourselves and talk to others who are expert in the space, who come from a different background or different lens and a different perspective. And I think, again, you're a perfect example of that. So thank you for, for shining a light on that today. Thank you for having me, Mark. I really enjoyed the conversation. Hope it was valuable for your listeners. Oh, I'm sure it was. And in case anybody does want to reach out to you and, you know, ask you questions about pricing or maybe potentially engage with you uh, on a more professional basis to have you come in and consult, uh, what's the best way for them to do that? Yeah. Uh, so I'm on LinkedIn at Dan Balkowski. If you reach out to me, just tell me, heard you on the show so I can sort it out from all the other LinkedIn spam. That's one area that I don't think LinkedIn does the best at. But um, so reach out to me at Dan Balkowski on LinkedIn. Otherwise, I blog regularly. A couple of blogs we talked about here are all on my website at producttranquility.com, all one word. So happy you know to connect with folks if they're interested or just answer questions. I love talking to folks about the space. Awesome. Yes, your passion definitely shines through. So thanks so much uh, for your time again, Dan. And I'm sure we will be hearing more from you very soon. I appreciate it, Mark. Thank you. Take care. For everyone still tuned in, thanks so much for listening. And if you enjoyed the podcast, please help us spread the word to other product marketers. Before we leave you to get on with your day, if you want to get involved, here are a few ways you can. If you're a product marketer and you want to come on the show and speak about your day, a specific topic or your role in general, that's one option. If you want to flex your podcast hosting skills, being a guest host is another. And finally, if you or your company want to sponsor an episode, there's a third. Thanks again and have a great morning, afternoon or evening, wherever you are.